This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee. I'm an associate digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm joined by Mark Alley. What's the occasion on which we're joining together, Morgan? It's our 100th episode, Mark. That is awesome. And you've been a part of every one of them? 99. 99, okay. And yeah, I've not been bad. A bun- I've been a part of about half of them. So. But you've been a part of my favorite ones, Mark. Oh, good. Thank so you. So I, I think that works out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Mark, who is joining us for this very momentous occasion? David Cashin is professor of Islamic and intercultural studies at Columbia Biblical Seminary and School of Ministry. Previously, has pastored two churches in Sweden and worked for years as a missionary and educator in Bangladesh. So as you'll soon hear from Morgan, uh, he's a really good person for us to talk about our topic today. Hey, David. Hi. Good to meet you guys. All right. So tell me if this is true. Do you actually speak nine other languages? Uh, Well, that is a bit of a misnomer. I I know a lot of dead languages, but those don't really count. I speak three languages, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, stuff like Sanskrit and Prakrit and Pali and Upabrongsho, these are not (laughs) spoken languages. That's still impressive. (laughs) All right. Yeah. So can you just tell us which languages you do know? I know Swedish and Bengali. Okay. And then the dead languages that you are familiar with were the ones that you just mentioned, and there are a couple others? Uh, yeah, well, I had to do my uh, two years of Koine Greek and uh, a few other things. So, yeah, there are a few other dead languages like that floating around. I think it's very cool, though, that you know Swedish and Bengali. I feel like you might be the only person in the world that knows <laughs> those two. <laughs> that's so cool. Oh, no, that's not true. We have lots of Bengali um, refugees in Sweden who would be fluent in both languages. For a while there, I actually made a living as a court translator and a um, lawyer translator because there were lots of Bengalis seeking political asylum and they didn't speak Swedish. So I was the translator going back and forth. But I doubt that they would need me at this point. There are plenty of Bengalis who are fluent in Swedish. Awesome. Actually, that gives us a little hint of what we're going to talk about today, which I'll get into right now. So. For the past decade, hundreds of Muslim migrants in Europe have encountered Christianity and embraced the gospel. In 2012, CT reported on the dozens of Iranian Muslims who had converted after moving to Germany. In recent years, as refugees have arrived in Western Europe from Iraq and Syria, members of these communities have in turn become Christians. Yet, Christian communities in Germany and Sweden, comprising both those from the historic Middle Eastern Church as well as recent converts, have been subject to abuse and harassment from radical Muslims at times. Last year, the German government reported nearly 100 anti-Christian hate crimes, including the murder of a Christian convert by a fellow refugee. The year before that, the number was even higher, according to Open Doors, which We've had folks from Open Doors on this podcast before. They are a group that works to represent and help out persecuted Christians. Open Doors reported a figure more than seven times that amount from 2017. 
So these are two different places where these numbers were coming from, just to make that note. Also, in 2017, Open Doors surveyed 123 Christian asylum seekers in Sweden. According to the report, more than half of all participants in the survey reported that they had been affected by violent assaults at least once due to their Christian faith. Almost half of all participants in the survey reported that they had been threatened to death at least once, and 6% said that they had been target of sexual assaults. So today on Quick to Listen, we'd like to get a further glimpse of the situation for Christian migrants in Western Europe, especially because it seems like there's just not a lot of data or there's a little bit of confusing data on the situation right now. So before we get into this bigger discussion, I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. What is the piece that we would like to incentivize people to subscribe? Well, it's an interesting piece by our columnist, Jen Wilkin. Uh, it's, it's The title is... Uh sarcastically put, that sarcastic slam is definitely a great idea, in which she tries to discern in what ways it is appropriate to use humor and what ways it's denigrating to use humor. This topic is not something you're going to find easy agreement on. I think her point about sarcasm is generally true, although I'm reading, as I've said in previous podcasts, uh, uh, Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, in which he uses sarcasm to great effect in criticizing the Soviet government of the time. Uh, But it is something we should be thinking about as Christians. All humor is not alike. Not all humorous situations are alike, and we ought to be sensitive to how we use it. And she does a good job of helping us think that through. I know some of our readers have even replied to this thing and said that their marriages were helped once they stopped employing sarcasm. Probably easier said than done, don't you think? Yeah, and probably day-to-day in personal relationships, sarcasm might not be all that helpful. Literarily, though it might be really powerful, it's a powerful tool that writers can use effectively. A lot of it depends on the situation, what you're trying to accomplish, who are the people involved. For the record, Mark and I have bonded over sarcasm. So exactly. not doesn't different strokes for different folks. <laughs> and it, it it also might there might be a gender thing. I know that when it comes to humor and ribbing and sarcasm and insults, that's one way guys tend to bond. And that you kind of you test one another to see how well they take it. I don't know that that's as true among women. All right. Well, since we're not doing a mini episode on sarcasm, <laughs> sorry, Mark. It's just a topic that interests both of us, obviously. I think it actually sounds like a great topic for future because we both have more that we want to say. But we can't talk about it right now because we have another topic to talk about. Anyway, if you want to read this piece and then have a lively conversation stirred by it, you can access it by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen, and you'll be able to access this piece online and in our the March issue of our magazine. I wonder if we should mention in light of Billy Graham's recent passing that the issue right after this is a, an issue dedicated to Billy Graham. It's true. So it's already on its way. So that would be something else you'll get to receive if you subscribe immediately. Awesome. And Mark also has a piece in that, too, about Billy Graham and his own faith journey. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's great. All right. So, Mark, I would just love to hear your gut check to this information that we just talked about with regards to these migrants in Europe and the type of potential persecution they're facing. Yeah, I've been following the story, and I am a little confused about what is actually happening on the ground because I'll hear some people say, look how horrible it is that the Muslim migrants are wrecking havoc and persecuting Muslims that become Christians. And then other people say, well, the actual numbers aren't any worse than any other immigrant group or any any other uh, segment of society. So I'm glad we're going to have a conversation to help us at least clarify it a bit. But of course, Anytime there's even one Christian who is assaulted or sadly murdered by a radical Muslim because of his faith, that's a terrible thing. And we should at least be aware 
that the interfaith strife between Muslims and Christians, not just confined to the Middle East, but it's finding its way in other parts of the world, and we need to figure out a way, a Christian way to respond to it. Well, yes, and people often migrate with many of their beliefs intact just because they live in a different place. Doesn't necessarily mean they're seeing the world differently, because I think another thing we're going to get into as well is the fact that there are Muslim migrants who have, in fact, encountered Christianity in what people might see as like an unlikely place for that to have happened. So I I guess my my gut check would just be that I know that a lot of European refugee and migrant stories can sometimes feel like they have some sort of political agenda attached to them, especially because people feel so strongly about whether more migrants should be let in or whether countries should kind of try to cap these. So I'm really excited that we have someone here who can give us a broader sense with hopefully no political agenda. Is that right, David? <laughs> well, yeah. I, uh, uh, you, you're talking about a lot of areas that I'm deeply concerned about. I've, uh, again, lived in Sweden. Two of my kids now live in Sweden and work with uh, migrants and refugees. So, And I'm doing some research right now on that topic. So uh, this is a timely uh, subject to take up. Speaking of Sweden and refugees there, are you familiar with the uh, the ministry of Anita Parson, who's a apparently a Church of Sweden minister who ministers to Muslims. The only reason I bring it up is she was in our testimony page in the last issue that we published. Well, I'm not familiar with her personally, but uh, you may be aware that a couple of Iranian women uh, who were converted to Christ and then uh, trained as pastors within the Swedish church have actually been on Swedish television. One in particular actually had uh, her whole life story told on a uh, faith program that was on, on Swedish television. That was really quite a remarkable uh, piece of programming. And there, there is an awareness in Sweden that quite a large number of Muslims have become Christians. So this is a very interesting area. In fact, one may say the largest revival that Sweden has experienced in the last hundred years is going on right now, and it's primarily Muslims becoming Christians. I am so eager to talk to you about this. I want to back up a little bit just to get some more context before we talk about this revival, which sounds super interesting. Maybe you can just give us a general sense about how long, you know, Western Europe has been seeing Middle Eastern migrants. Uh, We can talk about Western Europe in general very briefly. I'm not really an expert on Germany or some of the other countries, but we know that Really, after World War II, with the expansion of European industry, you had uh, significant numbers of Muslims coming into Western Europe. Turks came into Germany in large numbers. Of course, some came in because they were part of the, the former European colonial empires. If we focus on Sweden, however, you basically have two major waves uh, before the 1970s and later that, that were important. In the 1950s, you had a lot of Yugoslavs uh, who came to Sweden to work in the Swedish industry. And uh, a number of them uh, were Muslims. And then beginning in the 1960s, there was uh, a smaller wave of what I would call uh, religious refugees. And these were primarily the Ahmadiyya and other Muslim groups that were being persecuted in their homelands. The Ahmadiyya were from Pakistan. This is an Islamic group that has been defined as non-Muslim by every single Islamic council on earth and by quite a number of Muslim countries, governments and parliaments. And uh, with regard regard to the Ahmadiyyas, they were declared by the Pakistan parliament to be non-Muslims. And that, of course, set off a a wave of persecution. But even before that, there was persecution. 
And actually, one of the earliest mosques established uh, in Sweden was an Ahmadiyya mosque, uh, which was built in Gothenburg, Sweden. And I've been to that mosque and visited with them. Uh, so that was really sort of the second wave. Part of it was uh, workers coming into industry, but then uh, also refugees coming from the Muslim world. And that has, of course, greatly increased. In the 1970s, you had waves of Muslims coming from Bangladesh and from Iran uh, as a result of uh, things that were going on in Bangladesh economically, but also uh, the Islamic Revolution, which took place uh, in in um, 1979 with the Ayatollah Khomeini. That led to another wave of Muslims, primarily Iranians. And today, probably the single largest national group in Sweden of Muslims are the Iranians. And uh, that also headlines one other aspect we'll probably come back to, and that is that persecution of Christians largely depends on which ethnic group you're talking about and which time frame you're talking about. That's actually a good way to kind of begin to help us nuance this type of situation. I'm curious, as we're, we're talking about these communities, can you give us a sense of how these different immigrant populations are encountering the gospel and at the same time, also give us a sense of the maybe drift towards secularism that Sweden is encountering at the same time. Boy, there's a lot to say about that. I had a theory that Muslims who came to Sweden, particularly from Iran, would go in one of two directions. They would either become Christians or they would become secularists. And my thought was once they become secularists, they're no longer going to be open to the Christian message. Uh, I was shown to be wrong on that point through a number of churches that have seen sizable groups of formerly secular Iranians becoming Christians. So I've I've had to nuance my view on that, that maybe the move to secularism may be a ricochet that brings them into the gospel. Lots of stories we could tell about that. With regard to the immigrants in general, and Muslims specifically, the churches of Sweden have responded very positively to them. You had a manifesto from all of the evangelical pastors, uh, this is a couple of years back, where they declared their support for migration and care for refugees. And the Swedish churches, by and large, have uh, thrown all of their weight behind that from the Swedish uh, formerly state church all the way down through the various uh, evangelical and Pentecostal evangelical denominations. And as a result of that, through their various activities on behalf of refugees, everything from Swedish language classes to help in adapting to Swedish culture, to care for migrants and refugees in other ways, there has been a, a major people movement, particularly amongst the Shiite Muslims who've come to Sweden. They're primarily Iranians. And when you're looking at the Iranians, let me just give you some uh, not fully confirmed figures, but I have talked with Swedish secular journalists who are researching this people movement of Muslims to Christ. And the best we can come up with is that we have about 150,000 Shiite Muslims in Sweden, mostly from Iran and Afghanistan. On. Of those 150,000, about 15,000 are baptized members of Christian churches. So that's about 10% of, of that population. Amongst the Iranians, the other 90% are quite secular. And the way you can see that is they have not established a single Iranian Shiite mosque. Now, there are a couple of Shiite mosques uh, in Sweden, but they are entirely made up of Indian 
uh, Bohra background Muslims who are refugees from, from India and Pakistan coming to Sweden. Interestingly enough, the two mosques that are Shiite that I'm familiar with, one in Stockholm, one in Malmö, both have been attacked, physically attacked, by ISIS, by the Dawla Islamiyah, the, the Islamic State, which shows uh, a little bit that the, the uh, civil war that's going on inside of Islam has transferred itself even to the European stage. But looking at it from an ethnic perspective, if an Iranian becomes a Christian today, most of the Iranians will applaud Okay. Yeah. I mean, this is a huge change. I can remember bringing an Iranian Muslim background believer to Sweden. This would have been, oh my goodness, 30 years ago, uh, back in the early 80s to work with Iranians. We were working with Iranians at that time. And we had the experience of him giving his testimony to a couple of uh, Muslims uh, from Iran who literally threatened him physically uh, when he did that. You would not find that amongst Iranians today, or I would call it exceedingly rare, if existential at all. And that is because for Iranians who have left Iran today, the vast majority have turned their back on Islam. You might say that radical Islam in Iran has proved to be proto-evangelism. It has opened the door for Iranians to consider the gospel, as well as secularism, and in some cases, even Zoroastrianism, uh, going back to their uh, original ethnic religion. So if you're an Iranian uh, living amongst Iranians, although there are government agents and there are some Iranians who are afraid because they go back to Iran regularly and they don't want to be known as believers, not because they're threatened in Sweden, but because if that word got back to Iran, they might be imprisoned. Other than that kind of carefulness, uh, Iranians in general, you could say categorically, do not persecute Iranians who leave Islam. And I've, I've met secular Iranians who, when I speak of Iranians who become Christians, they smile and laugh and say, that's great. And I could give you some stories. Well, actually, yeah, a story or two would help bring some flesh on it. So if you've got one, that would be great. I uh, had been speaking in a number of the Iranian house churches in the Burus area. Burus is a small uh, industrial city about an hour to the east of Gothenburg. And uh, in that town alone, you have had up to 200 baptized Iranians out of a population of 1,500. Count that out. That's getting close to 15, 16% of the population. They have Persian language meetings, but they are also meeting in the Swedish language churches. So they, there has been a significant level of joining the Swedish church and becoming part of that and joining in with Swedish culture. Uh, in any case, after I had uh, been speaking at a number of those meetings, I, I'd gone with my three sons down to go swimming at the local uh, swimming pool. And while we were there, a group of 10 Iranian men came in and jumped into the jacuzzi. And of course, my whole focus is Muslims and particularly Iranians. So I jumped into the jacuzzi with them and, and I played dumb for a little bit. I asked them where they were from and they said, oh, we're from Iran. And I said, oh, Iran, I love Iran and I love Iranians. That's, that's wonderful to hear. And then I continued to play dumb. I said, well, how, how many Iranians are there here in Buros? And he told me what I already knew about 1,500. So I asked kind of sheepishly, well, uh, have you established a mosque? Mosque, said the oldest man in the group. Who in their right mind would want to have a mosque? <laughs> and as he says this, the other nine Iranians are all laughing and smiling and nodding their heads. Well, of course, in a situation like that, you get a little bold. So 
I knew where a lot of the Iranians had become Christians at a, a local Pentecostal church. So I mentioned that church and said, well, what do you think of the Pentecostal church? And this old guy just waxes, you know, eloquent. He says, oh, the, the Pentecostal church, what a wonderful place. You know, I've actually visited there a couple of times myself. You know, some of my friends have become members there. And as he says this, all the other Iranians are smiling and nodding their heads. So at this point, I got really bold. And I said to him, well, my friend, what do you think of Jesus Christ? And this Iranian guy looks very seriously at me and he says, you know, we Iranians, we love Jesus because he teaches us about the love of God and our imams and ayatollahs would never teach about the love of God. And as he says this, all the other Iranians are smiling and nodding their heads. Now, at that time, even 10 years earlier, 20 years earlier, you would have never experienced something like that. It just shows that that particular ethnic group has, by and large, turns their, turned their back on Islam. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is both faithful to the original languages and really easy to read. You can learn more about the Christian Standard Bible at csbible.com ct. This is Quick to Listen host Morgan Lee, joined by Trevin Wax, Bible and reference publisher for Lifeway Christian Resources and Holman Bibles. Hey, Trevin. Glad to be with you guys. The latest version of the Christian Standard Bible came out last year. Can you read me pieces of scripture that show off the differences between the original and the revised version? The blessing that you find in Numbers, there was the use of Yahweh, the name of the Lord. Most Bible traditions have translated Yahweh as the Lord in small caps. The HCSB translated the Lord as Yahweh 600-something times. And so they looked at that and said, well, either we need to be completely consistent and we need to go with the name Yahweh every time it appears in the Old Testament, which is about 6,000 times, or we need to go back to the English Bible tradition and go with the Lord. And they decided to go back with how Hebrews read Adonai when they would come across the name of the Lord. And so HCSB had, may Yahweh bless you and protect you. The CSB has, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. This episode of Quick to Listen was brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com ct to find the right Christian Standard Bible edition for you. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So I can surmise from the previous example, too, of ISIS attacks on the two mosques that you know of, that when we hear about attacks on Christians, we shouldn't imagine, it doesn't sound to me like it's specifically aimed at former Muslims who are now Christians, there is a group of radical Muslims who, who will vent their wrath on anyone who they don't think is, is towing the line. 
Well, I would go beyond radical Muslims. Again, it depends on the people group. Uh, the, the Afghani Hazaras, who are Shiites, are the largest group that has gone to Sweden. Yet some amongst them are still fairly traditional Muslims. And so many Hazaras have now come to faith in Christ, largely through the witness of the Iranians, because, of course, they're all Shiite Muslims. But some of those uh, folks are living in refugee camps. And that's where the problem comes in. It's largely the new refugees that are coming into Swedish refugee camps that are experiencing the persecution. When I was speaking in Boros uh, more recently, I, we had quite a number of Afghanis who were present in the meeting, and three or four of them had already taken baptism. But those who were still in the refugee camps were under pressure from their own people uh, who were recognizing that something was going on here, and uh, they had created a lot of negativity and and persecution, and even in some cases, uh, some verbal threats uh, to some of these guys. That's also happening with the more recent Syrian migrants. So two things are kind of going on at the same time. The Afghanis are coming to Christ. Some of the Syrian migrants are coming to Christ. Uh, there is, and now even I have to be careful about where I tell you, because there is a movement a Bible camp that meets every year, I'm not going to tell you where, in Sweden for, in its, it, it is in the Arabic language, and it was originally established for Arab Christians who had fled the Middle East uh, because of the endemic persecution of Christians in virtually all of the Arab countries. Uh, they had come and started a Bible camp in Arabic in the summers. Last two years ago, for the first time, the majority of the participants in that camp were Muslims. We're talking in the 800 to 1,000 people range. So there is a movement beginning even amongst the Arab Muslims uh, coming for refuge to Sweden. And what is happening is those who are in the refugee camps, there's still obviously a minority who are interested in the gospel. And what is happening is that minority is being persecuted. And those Christians who've come as refugees, if they're living on the same camp with, with Muslims, they're tending to get persecuted at this point. Yeah, so a lot depends on who you are and where you are. Uh, if you're an Iranian living in Swedish society, you don't experience much persecution. If you are a refugee living in a refugee camp and you're either a Christian or a Muslim who has converted to Christianity, you're likely facing significant pressure at this point. And the problem is that you don't have to just be a radical. Just a normal, average, everyday Muslim from the Middle East considers it unthinkable that a person would convert out of Islam. I'll give you an example. When the Pew Research uh, Fund did a survey in Egypt of religious attitudes, they found that 85% of Egyptians believe that a Muslim who leaves Islam should be put to death. Okay, so we're not just talking about you know, a small percentage of radicals. That's the common rank and file opinion of your average Egyptian Muslim. Okay. So yeah. when people are refugees from Syria or Iraq or other places like that, and they come to Sweden, they still carry that basic Islamic viewpoint uh, that Muslims uh, who leave Islam should be put to death. And by the way, one of the reasons why the Ahmadiyyas were declared to be non-Muslim across the Muslim world by all Sunni and Shiite Islamic councils is because one of those reasons was they rejected the law of apostasy in Islam. They said we should no longer say that a Muslim who leaves Islam should be executed. And that, along with a couple of other things, was enough to have them declared non-Muslims by 
the vast majority of the Muslim world. So that particular law uh, is still the boogeyman of the Muslim world. Well, one thing that you had noted previously, too, though, was that after a certain amount of time that um, some of these communities had spent outside of their home countries, some of their views seemed to, to soften on these issues. I would say in Iranians, that's definitely the case, but it's partly because so many Iranians have converted to Christianity and partly also because so many other Iranians are so discouraged with Islam. I would say that you have two structures emerging in Sweden today. You have the structure of those Muslims who are trying to assimilate, if you will, into Swedish culture. And uh, joining a Swedish church is actually part of that process for some. But then you have also parallel societies that are being set up uh, in places. I used to live in Rinkeby, Sweden. Uh, Rinkeby today is majority Muslim and it's radical, or I would say, I shouldn't say the word radical because that makes you think ISIS, but I would say the Hezbollah laws, that is the law of Islam, is now enforced in those areas. And I can give a specific example from Swedish television. Uh, Swedish television uh, took a Kurdish girl who'd converted to Christianity and was wearing a cross and didn't have her hair covered and they decided to go into Rinkeby, to the main square, to see what would happen. And they were almost immediately assaulted, verbally initially, and then with people actually rushing at them so that the, the girl and the Swedish journalist actually had to retreat from Rinkeby. They ran down the stairs. This is all recorded on camera and was shown on Swedish television. And the Swedish journalist shouts at these people who are screaming at them, Det är Sverige! This is Sweden. And one of the men responds in virtually perfect Swedish, This is not Sweden. Wow, that's so interesting. Wow. So, so you have certain parts of Sweden, certain core immigrant areas that have essentially um, aren't really under the Swedish state anymore. So it, it is a, a rather remarkable juxtaposition of openness and persecution, of people turning to Christ and people really having their freedom of religion and their freedom of speech significantly restricted. And I would say that the Swedish authorities, they're not unaware of this problem, but of course it's not politically correct to even mention it. So, you know, the spe speaking about no-go zones, it's not really a no-go zone. You can go into those places, but you better be careful about your behavior. Police cannot go in without significant backup. And if you go in as a typical Westerner, you'd be, you need to be very careful about your behavior. Uh, better not wear a prominent cross. Better not, if you're a woman, leave your hair uncovered. I mean, those are the sort of things you do when you're visiting a foreign country. So it's like you're visiting a foreign country within Sweden. And, and it feels like a foreign country because the women are veiled and clearly don't go out much. It is a highly masculinized society where the vast majority of the people that you see are men. And it, it doesn't feel like Sweden. We'll put it that way. So something that came up in our reporting back in 2012 was that some had argued that some of these migrants had converted to Christianity, so there was less of a likelihood that they would get deported back to their home countries. What do you make of those arguments? Uh, that does happen, clearly. There are many cases in both Germany, I've read some examples of this, and we've seen that in Sweden, where a person will uh, come to the church for the purpose of uh, getting a visa to another country. You see that even more extensively 
in Turkey. I have uh, friends working in Turkey, and uh, there, pretty much, the churches have decided they will no longer issue uh, certificates of baptism because they realize that this is being used primarily as a means to get into the Western countries or to apply for political asylum. Swedish authorities are uh, on top of that as well. Uh, that's one of the reasons why they do a lot of questioning of these um, uh, of these individuals who who come in and, and claim a, a religious conversion. So it's a mixture. You have some that are are genuine believers. You have some who are trying to find a way to stay in the country. And I, I've seen that going back to the early 80s in my work with uh, refugees from Bangladesh. There also they would often join the church and be engaged and get baptized and all the rest of that. And then the day after they get their permanent residence, they're suddenly they vanish. You know, we we talked a little bit about kind of Swedish authorities and law enforcement. I'm I'm curious when it comes to violence against Christian migrants, you know, how would the government make the decision to decide to call it a hate crime versus just seeing it as an act of violence? between two groups that don't get along. Let's just put it this way. It is much easier to label something Islamophobic than to label it Christophobic. Part of it is the idea that the Swedes have as the majority population and a secularized, a highly secularized population where probably less than 2% of Swedes are in any way really regularly associated with the church there's this idea as the majority group that we should we should be tolerant and we should never think in terms of persecution of us because you know we're the majority and we're really the people most likely to be persecutors and there are of course skinheads and other like Sverige Demokrater you know the hyper right end of the spectrum Swedes who would persecute in fact some of those groups have been involved in burning down uh, refugee centers and so the idea that there would be some Christophobia is, I mean, this word hasn't even been, you know, coined as a phrase. No, but nobody uses it. And I think you would be a laughing stock to use it. But I think you you have a similar issue in that pe- people are persecuted because they are Christians in the same way that sometimes Muslims are persecuted just because they're Muslims. But I would say that Judeophobia is a much bigger problem than Islamophobia. And that's demonstrated by all of the statistics across Europe as well as across America. And it's also interesting that those primarily behind the Judeophobia tend to be Muslims. And that's also statistically borne out, although certainly they're not the only ones doing that. You know, at the beginning of this conversation, you had mentioned something about Swedish revival breaking out. And I'm wondering if these conversions that have occurred among migrants who have come to Sweden have had any impact on Swedish culture at large? I would say very much so. Uh, In fact, uh, many of us are thinking of this revival as being one of the ways that native Swedes will actually maybe find their way back to the church. Really, it's in the church that you see multiculturalism being practiced. Uh, The society as uh, as a whole doesn't do this. Let me give you one specific story from Gothenburg that illustrates why even secularized Muslims may turn to the gospel. A number of years ago, there was a a group of secular communist Iranians who were being expelled from Sweden back to Iran, and they were desperate to find a way to avoid expulsion. 
And uh, they didn't get much help from the Swedish leftist groups. Uh, they just, you know, thought, well, this is really sad, and they protested, but they didn't really offer them any help. Well, the Iranians decided to stage a hunger strike, and they wanted some kind of a public place to do it in. Well, no leftist group had anything to suggest, so they went walking around the city, and they bumped into a Pentecostal church. I won't name the name of it, but it was a large Pentecostal church in Gothenburg. And, you know, I often ask Christians when I tell this story, would your church do what this Pentecostal church did? Because when the Iranians asked to stage a hunger strike within the church— the church said yes. Wow, that's amazing. And so they had uh, dozens of hunger-striking Iranians in the foyer of their church, and they put on a public display outside the church. And of course, all these journalists and others were coming to talk about it. By the way, it was a Swedish journalist who told me this story. And when he got done, he said, now that church has 500 converted Iranian members, all coming out of those leftist groups. In other words, they got help from the Christians. They did not get help from the leftists. And in the process, they heard the gospel and responded to it. They now have Persian language worship at that church. They have, if you go onto the church's website, there's a, there's a Persian language part of the website. It's just really a, a remarkable event. And that's one of the things that showed me that the move to secularism on the part of Muslims does not necessarily remove them out of the potential group that may turn to Christ if they get to hear the gospel. Why do you think the church has done better when it comes to what you said is true multiculturalism? One of the things that I saw when I used to run multicultural gatherings in Gothenburg, uh, I, I used to do that at the language school there, and I put on some parties, and I can remember uh, being at one particular party. And of course, the leftist parties would come, you know, the the, the Social Democrats, Vepeko, uh, the Venstre Partiet Communista, the Communist Party would be there. But one of the things that I noticed was that I and the group of Christians who were with me, we mixed with the foreigners. And at that time, you had a lot of people from Latin America, you had people from Chile, uh, other places. So I would be sitting at table eating with those people. And I noticed that the Swedish communists and the social democrats tended to be off by themselves with their own group. They didn't really mix it up with the migrants at least not in any of the things that I put on back in the early 80s. And what you sensed was, for political reasons, they were excited to talk about migrants and stuff. But in terms of being truly multicultural, learning the languages, I mean, most of the people in my group had either, from the church, had either learned Persian or had learned Spanish or had learned some of the other languages represented there. That was not something that the leftists were bothering to do. And I think if you look at the the fact that the God of the Bible is the author of ethno-linguistic cultural difference and diversity, that the church has a theological foundation for being multicultural, which I don't think the leftist ideology really has. It doesn't have a foundational aspect other than that it's politically expedient to be multicultural. Now, I'm sure there are many leftists who, if they heard that, they'd fly through the roof and say, that's not true, and blah 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 but that's just been my experience. And if you look at the places where Muslim migrants are integrating best into Swedish society, I would say hands down it's through the church. Well, that's a great affirmation of the church at its best. That's really very yeah. encouraging to hear. That's a word also to the American church, because when I see pastors groups in America backing Trump for no migration to the United States, 
I'm not only outraged, but at the same time, I'm bemused at the foolishness of these people. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to we could we could move in that direction of how that works itself out in the <laughs> okay, U.S. We don't need that. That's my one statement on no, that. No, no, that's fine. Subject. That's fine. <laughs> uh, I and that's why I said this is an impressive and inspirational model that the Pentecostal Church in Sweden is showing us. So that's that's really and it's not just the Pentecostals. I mean, I, I'm not Pentecostal, frankly. Okay. Uh, I I just have lots of friends there, but you're seeing that across the board. I could tell you some other evangelical churches that. Although, frankly, you have to say most most evangelical churches in America, in Sweden have a a level of Pente- Pentecostal influence that you wouldn't see across the board in evangelicalism in America. My last question, I guess, is a little policy related. What recommendations would you make to the Swedish government to better protect and take care of some of these Christian migrants? Well, I think there's one thing that they need to to recognize, and, and that is that certain groups will automatically be persecuted. That's just a given. And this goes against the grain of everything of Swedish policy and so forth. But I think you need to have separate camps for Christians, uh, particularly ethnic Christians that come from areas of persecution. To put them in the same camp with their persecutors uh, is just insane. Uh, bluntly insane, and and it's an invitation to persecution. I would say also that it would be good to look at the Muslim groups who are coming in and uh, see if there are those who are seeking a different way of life, who have a different level of desire to integrate. That wouldn't be just Christians, but people who really want to get to know Swedish culture and, and the Swedish language, and who don't want to be part of a separate society, means need to be taken to give those people an opportunity. One of the things that the Swedish government should do, and I saw this when I was a pastor, is stop concentrating these people in, you know, huge unlegningat, as they call them, you know, refugee camps where all of this kind of problem festers, and put them out in smaller groupings, particularly in cooperation with local churches, in, and putting them out in rural parts of Sweden where they can get into the local schools and mix it up with Swedish kids and get integrated into Swedish society, learn the Swedish language quicker, and avoid these uh, massive 99% immigrant areas where language isn't learned well, where the Hizbullah laws get enforced, where a separate society is being set up. Uh, the Swedish government needs to take a completely different approach to this. And and I think there are those who are arguing for that. The problem is their voices are not being heard. Yeah, it definitely seems that some of the issue is just when just the consequence of when you concentrate that many people in such a small space together, that there's often <laughs> a lot more conflict that can happen, especially when those people are not living in permanent homes and may or may not have jobs. By the way, that, that would be true for Yazidis. There's a large Yazidi community in Sweden planted because of all the persecution. I would not want to have a Yazidi living in a camp with Sunni Muslims. Uh, that's that would be dangerous for them. Yeah, and I and I mean we could do a whole other podcast on what it takes to do integration well, um, but it seems that it can always be a challenge. I mean, even in you know we're all we're we're close to Chicago, and there are definitely immigrant communities in there where people can easily just kind of get cloistered up in there and may not have opportunity or resources to learn the language um, or may have other barriers. I think I've mentioned before I teach a citizenship class to people who 
are taking the test in Spanish and many of them have lived in the country for more than 20 years. And I, I work with a lot with people who are illiterate or don't have strong levels of education. And so trying to imagine them learning another language, there's just more barriers than if you were working with people who came in with even a high school degree or college education. Now, this is where the church plays an incredible role. For it's natural for people. Americans who go to Bangladesh hang out at the American Club. I mean, that's just natural stuff to, to do. But the church can function as an intermediary where these people can come in, feel acceptance, make connections with common, average, everyday Swedes. And I think the Swedish model that is emerging of the church is a very healthy model uh, where you have people from many different languages, cultures, and backgrounds mixing together and figuring out how to be integrated in Swedish society and be successful. That's where I think the church has a huge role to play, and that is also true in the United States. Our churches here are way behind the Swedish churches in terms of really engaging with the migrant communities. And we're not just talking about Muslims, we're talking about Hispanics, we're talking about people from Africa, uh, and the church really needs to step up. And frankly, this is where they can see revival as well. All right. Well, we'll leave the podcast there. People that have feedback can give it to us on Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when everyone gets to share something that is bringing them joy at the moment. Mark, do you want to go? Yeah. As the weather is warming up here, I'm, I'm taking out my fly rod and practicing my fly casting. So I only do that for 15 minutes when I get home from work. But as you know, from the various skills you've practiced, uh, there's not only the end game of catching a fish, but there's the technique involved in it that's, uh, when you do it well, it, it gives you pleasure by itself. Different year, same mark. Huh? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, I'm glad you get to spend time outside, though. That's like the most important thing. Yeah. And then some nights I went to step out uh, the other night and started to hail. So, you know, you, you have to just play it by ear this time of year. All right, Mark, where can people find you? They can find me on uh, by subscribing to The Galley Report. It's an e-newsletter e that comes into their boxes on Fridays. Uh, go to christianitytoday.com slash thegalleyreport, spelled G-A-L-L-I, in which I do some reading on your behalf, link to articles I find interesting, and comment on them. If you don't have enough of Mark's opining. <laughs> exactly. You can get more of it. <laughs> All right, David? Mark, we're in the same ballpark. Every two years I go to New Zealand and one of the premier fly fishermen of New Zealand is a good buddy of me. Oh so he takes gosh. me out fly fishing. We went this last uh, July and we, I landed eight trout, the largest of which was a four and a half pound, no, five pound brown trout. And then a, a bunch of rainbows in the two to three pound range. Brother, I, I hear you all the way. It's my, my favorite uh, area. Okay, and if people want to reach me, you can reach me through my email at uh, david.cashin at ciu.edu, D-A-V-I-D dot C-A-S-H-I-N. You can cash in with Cashin at ciu.edu. And uh, I have a number of books. Uh, probably my most important is The Life of Muhammad, or actually it's called Muhammad and the People of the Book, which is available on Amazon. Thank you, David. All right, my precious moment, I guess, is eating Puerto Rican food, because I ate a bunch of Puerto Rican food the, on did, Sunday. Did you pick up the memo? We're talking about fly fishing today. My memory, my precious moment is of Mark never me, inviting me to go fishing with him. So thank you, Mark. <laughs> How does one have these opportunities unless they're given the invitation <laughs> to participate in them? 
I don't know if I'd like fly fishing. I would like being outside. But anyway, back to Puerto Rican food. I don't know how much people here have eaten Puerto Rican food, but they use plantains a lot. And um, I ate them for lunch and also for dinner. That day, my neighbor was making ibarritos, which are similar to Colombian uh, tostones. Basically, you take the plantain, you cut it in half, you deep fry it, you take it out, you smash it, you deep fry it again, and then you eat it with delicious steak and onions and tomato sauce thing. It's delicious. And then I had some other awesome that was like it was similar to like a tamale but it wasn't a tamale it was like mashed plantains with pork and stuff for lunch which was also good i don't know i was just like why don't i eat more puerto rican food this is great all right people can find me on twitter at m-e-p-a-y-n-l that is it for us this week thank you for everyone who has listened to us since the beginning i'm sure there are some of you have listened to all 100 episodes so we really appreciate you thank you so much for supporting the podcast thank you everyone who has supported the podcast too by subscribing to christianity today magazine you can do that again by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen and thank you everyone who has supported the podcast by leaving us five stars on apple podcast and rating and reviewing the show that is always such a big tangible way to say thank you so we're super appreciative for that as well. The podcast is available on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, wherever you want to get your podcasts, we are there. And this podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. We will see you next week. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.